All right, our scripture this morning is Mark 8, 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from the heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into his boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you just for your incredible provision. Thank you for um, just how well this remodel has uh, come together. Um, thank you for your blessing over the summer, giving us good weather so we're able to meet. Uh, we just ask that you be with uh, Pastor John this morning as he shares your word, uh, that he would share what you would have um, put on his heart. And in Christ's name we say Amen. Amen. And if we could have the older children join me downstairs for class, that would be great. All right. Josh, thank you so much. Wow. Didn't this look nice? <laughs> oh, uh, it's not finished yet, but it's, it's, it's looking really good. And we so appreciate all who have helped. We had a big work party yesterday, and just a lot of people did a lot of work to help get this room ready. It was, it was quite a of work. So we are so thankful for that. A little echoey is just something I need to do. All right. Excellent. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Well, I, you are probably a lot of things. You're a brother or sister, maybe. You're a son, a daughter. You're an employer, an employee, a retiree, uh, a Republican, a Democrat, independent, Conscientious objector. <laughs> but one thing I make an assumption of for those of you here today is most of you 
are disciples of Jesus. You'd say you're a disciple of Jesus or you're exploring that. You're interested in that. And so the question I have for you is, how are you doing as a disciple of Jesus? How's it going for you as a follower of Jesus? It's kind of hard to know sometimes, isn't it? In our educational system that we have here in uh, our culture, it's kind of easy to know how you're doing as a student. We have tests. You take a test, you get a score, it tells you how you're doing. Now, you can debate whether that's a good system or not, but you can know how well you're doing. In fact, when I was in seminary working on my master's degree, I had a seminary professor who, after every major exam, he would hand out to the top three scores, students who made the top three scores, he would call them out and he would give them a book or a magazine, something he was gleaning from his library. And so you not only knew how you did, you knew who the top three scores were in that particular class. But how do we know how we are doing as a follower of Jesus Christ? Are we being effective as a, as a follower of Christ? And how can we be as fruitful and effective a follower of Christ as we can be? And that's what our passage that we're looking at today helps us see. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open to that passage that Josh just read, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And in this, as you read it, as you heard Josh reading it, you might have thought, well, there are three separate events here, right? The first 10 verses, Jesus feeds the 4,000 people. And by the way, Matthew has a parallel account of this same event in Matthew 15. And he says it was 4,000 men plus women and children in addition to it. So it's, it's a big crowd, right? And then Jesus travels to Dalmanutha, which is hard to, hard to read and, and, and say right. And scholars are not really quite sure where that is. Some manuscripts say Magdala, and it's probably that it had the same name on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and there the Pharisees come, and they, they kind of argue with Jesus. And then there's the boat ride back to the other side of the lake, back to the, the, the west side of the lake, uh, excuse me, to the east side of the lake, to um, Bethsaida, which is where, as they're going on the boat, the disciples misunderstand Jesus' warning, and they start arguing about why didn't we bring enough bread. And it seems like these are three different events. But in reality, it, these things are related, because when Jesus talks with his disciples in the boat, He's addressing what happened with the Pharisees. And to explain that, he goes back to the feeding of the 4,000. And so we see these, these three things are related. And I want to start with the very last verse, verse 21. And I'm going to look back at these events with that verse. And look with me at Mark 8, 21. And Jesus said this to his disciples. Do you not yet understand? Now, the 12 who are in the boat with Jesus are his core disciples. We might stop for a minute and just ask, what, what is a disciple anyway? The Latin word that we get our English word from, we get it from a uh, Latin word, it simply means learner or pupil. The Greek word that's used in our New Testament is someone who, who follows, who is an apprentice, who accompanies their rabbi, their teacher, so that they can follow his lifestyle and learn from him. This is why Jesus was often called a rabbi, because he had disciples. He had these men who were following him around, seeking to learn from him. And there was a, there was a Jewish expression or blessing that said this, May you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. And the point of that is that you're following so close as he walks along the dusty road that his dust gets all over you. 
that that's how closely you're following him. And so when Jesus turns to his disciples in this boat and he says, don't you guys understand? What kind of score do you think he would give them if that was a written exam? Would it be a high score or a low score? Low. What about us? How are we doing as followers of Christ? So as we prepare to examine our hearts with this passage, I'd like to just ask God's help. Would you join with me as I pray? Father, I thank you for making yourself known to us, for reconciling us with you through Jesus Christ. And we're here today because we want to follow him. We want to be your disciple, Lord Jesus. Will you help us learn how better to do that? Will you speak to us from your word in Jesus' name? Amen. So I'm going to look at this passage by asking you three questions. First of all, what is it that we're to understand? Secondly, why is it so hard to understand it? And third, how can we better understand it? There's clearly something that we need to understand, Jesus is saying to his disciples. So the question first is, what? What is that that I am to understand? I'll give you the short answer. You ready? Jesus is all I need. Another way of saying it is this. I can trust Jesus with everything in my life. I can trust him and just follow him. Now, when Jesus warned the disciples in the boat, he said, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of heaven, of Herod. They thought he was talking literally about bread. Uh, they were concerned that they hadn't brought enough bread. To correct this misunderstanding, Jesus reminds them of the feeding, both when he just fed the 4,000 and back earlier when he fed the 5,000. Look at verse 19. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many, ba and, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. In other words, Jesus' feeding of these people revealed something about him that his disciples needed to understand. And what is that? Let's look at that and see what it is it reveals about Jesus and why that means we can trust him, whatever we're facing in our life. The first thing is this. We see that Jesus has compassion for us. Look at verse 2. As the crowd was, was there in this desolate place, Jesus said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now, the word compassion literally means to be moved in one's bowels, because that's how the ancients considered the seat of emotions. In fact, you, we, we also have expressions like that. For example, you say something was a gut-wrenching experience, right? So you feel that in your bowels. And, and what Jesus is saying and what we see is this. When we face challenges and hardships, it's easy to wonder, does God really care? Does God really see what I'm going through? Does he care about what I'm going through? Is he really at work in this situation? Years ago, I was working in youth ministry, and at that time, there was a popular devotion for young people, and the title of it was, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Open My Locker? <laughs> now, if you've ever been in junior high school where you had those lockers, and you couldn't get that lock to operate, it was... Very humiliating, right? And, and, and we don't outgrow that. We go through these hardships and, and we wonder if, if God really loves me, if he really cares about me, then why do I have this cancer? Why, why am I having these financial problems? Why is my mate 
not being faithful to me? Why am I having trouble at my job? And we wonder, if I'm really trying to follow Jesus, why am I having these problems? Does he really care? And what we see in the feeding of the, these 4,000 is he really does care. He has compassion for us. But not only that, there's a second thing we see, and it's this. He not only cares about us, he has the divine power to meet any need that we have. He takes, he takes the, the, the little bread, and it's just pita-sized. When it talks about a loaf of bread, it's talking about a one single-serving pita-sized piece of bread. And when it talks about fish, it uses a term for little fish. Think sardines. Okay, that's about the size fish we're talking about here. And he takes it, and he breaks it after blessing it and giving thanks, and he passes it out to these thousands of people. And then look at verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. My point is this. They not only were satisfied, they were satisfied in an abundant way. They collected seven baskets. Now, those of you who are pretty astute in your Bible knowledge, you remember probably the feeding of the 5,000. You're thinking, well, in the boat, Jesus reminded them they took up 12 baskets with the 5,000. Maybe Jesus is losing his mojo. You know, <laughs> This time it's not as many, but just seven baskets. However, it's a different word for basket. You know, There are different Greek words for basket. And the word that he uses here for these seven is the big basket. You might remember, those of you who uh, have read in the book of Acts, they lowered the Apostle Paul over the, the, the wall of Damascus in a basket. That's the word that's used here. We're talking about man-sized baskets, right? And so the point I'm making is this, that Jesus supplied their need in a very abundant way. There's no need, there's no challenge, there's no heartache that we could ever experience that's too big for the one who loves our soul, who is God Almighty, none will be too big for him that we face. In fact, this is why Paul could write to the church at Philippi after they sent a material gift to Paul to meet his needs. He says to them in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a big promise. That God will supply your every need. The disciples were worried about having enough bread. And Jesus was saying to them, I'm in the boat with you. If I'm in the boat with you, don't worry about bread. There's nothing you need to be worried about. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we're never going to face needs or pain or hardship. It doesn't mean that, that Christ is going to meet our needs in the way that we expect or when we expect. But it does mean this, all-powerful God who spoke the world into existence, who holds everything in the palm of his hand, cares about us, and will abundantly meet our needs in the way they need to be met, in the time that they need to be met. This is why Jesus said on his great sermon on the mount in Matthew 6, he said, therefore, do not be anxious, what, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the, Greek, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do we really believe that? Cindy and I had a test 
Uh, we've had several tests, but one of, the, one of the seminal moments when we really put that to test was when our oldest son, Andrew, was born. At the time, I was pastoring a small church in Portland, Oregon, and Cindy was working a job to help pay the bills. And when Andrew was born, we prayerfully came to the conviction that God's Spirit was calling us for her to stay home and be a full-time mom. Now, we sat down and we crunched the numbers with the budget, and it was absolutely impossible. There's no way that we could do without her income. But we stepped out in faith, and she quit her job. And I still can't explain to you this day how it happened, but somehow, all these years, all the bills have been paid, and God's provided for us. And we were able to do that. Now, trusting Christ is not a license to be... Um, irresponsible and self-indulgent. And Cindy and I had to really check our motives in this and be sure we felt like we had clear guidance from God. But what it means when you trust Jesus is you can trust him with what people call real life things, that he really cares about us and he will provide for us if we simply trust him. I'm going to add a second thought about it, and it's this. There is also no sin that Jesus cannot forgive. There's no way that we can be so messed up and so far from God that he can't pour his grace into our lives and redeem us and, and, and bring um, life and, and reconciliation to us. I say that because while this passage doesn't tell us where the feeding of the 4,000 happened, most scholars, and I would agree with them, would say that this was in, in a region that, that was... Um, called the Decapolis. It was a region that was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was mostly Gentiles. In other words, this crowd was almost entirely, probably, made up of Gentiles. And, and, and Jews did not have a high view of Gentiles, as you might remember. In fact, in the Jewish world, Gentiles were just matchsticks to be burned in the fires of hell. That's how they viewed these Gentiles. And yet, Jesus cares about them, and he provides for them. And it reminds me that nobody is so far from God that his grace and his love cannot reach you. No one is so broken that he cannot take your life and put it back together in, in a glorious, wonderful, fruitful, joy-filled way. I thought about this. There was a young woman some years ago that our, I came in connection with in our community. This young woman had had a, an abortion some years before. And she felt tremendous shame and guilt about that. In fact, every year at the anniversary of that abortion, she spiraled down into a deep depression. And my heart just longed for her to understand that Jesus really could forgive her. That she didn't need to live in shame and guilt and brokenness. That nothing is beyond the redemptive work of God's grace. And, and she, she, would, she would try to grasp that, but she could, could never Truly trust Jesus to do that. Do you, in your life, trust him that there's nothing he cannot really forgive and that you're never too far, never too broken? That's what he wants us to understand. This is a simple concept. This is not rocket science. My, John, I'm sorry. Every time I say that, I think about John Echo. If you don't know, John Echo is truly a rocket scientist. <laughs> you know? So every time I say it's not rocket science, there's John looking at me. You know, what do you know about rocket science? He's thinking, you know. 
It's a simple concept. Why do we struggle with it so much? Here's why. This is the second question. Why is it so hard to understand? You know, the, the disciples were certainly struggling with it, right? They were, and, and we do too, don't we? Do you ever feel anxious? Do you ever feel worried? Do you ever have just a, a sense of insecurity? You wonder about God's presence and God's hand in your life? I do at times. The problem isn't an intellectual understanding. The problem is our heart. Why do we struggle? I think we see two things here why we struggle with this. The first is this. We tend to focus on our problem and not God's promises. We focus on our problem and not God's promises. When, when, when Jesus expressed his concern for the people that were hungry and needed to be fed, where did the disciples turn their attention? Did they go immediately and think about the feeding of the 5,000? No. Look at verse 4. The disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, I wanted, I wanted you to know that they were absolutely correct. It was an impossible situation. There was no way that they could feed that vast crowd without any real resources in a desolate place. So when I talk about trusting Christ, understand I'm not talking about denial. You know, you don't look at a difficult situation and say, oh, this is not a difficult situation. Friends, we do face sometimes painful, challenging, difficult situations that seem impossible except Jesus was there. And we have his promises to focus on. Promises like Romans 8, 28, where all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I tend to focus on how big and scary and difficult my problem is. Do you do that? It keeps us from trusting Christ because we don't focus on his promises. And then there's a second thing we see, and it's this. We trust in and seek fulfillment in something other than Christ. In other words, when we have a problem, we begin to solve it ourselves. We begin to look to other things to fulfill that need, to deal with that issue. This is why the Pharisees totally missed who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. When they encounter Jesus, they're just arguing with him because they are trusting in something else. They were trusting in their human traditions of their religion. And they were trusting that rather than trusting Christ. And so all they want to do is oppose him. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They were looking for some kind of big cosmic sign that only uh, could be explained by God, right? God did this big cosmic sign. And Jesus refuses to give it to him, right? And it wasn't just the Pharisees who trusted in other things. Uh, Matthew's parallel account tells us that the Sadducees also came with Jesus. And notice when Jesus gets in the boat, he adds a third group. And, and, and look at verse 15. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And we know the Sadducees from Matthew. We know the Sadducees were there. And the leaven of Herod. Three groups. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were the if we were to parlay it into our terminology today, you might consider them the, the conservative, theologically conservative group. Uh, they took the whole Old Testament and they added to it all these human traditions and they were very serious about working your way into heaven and they looked forward to being in heaven. And then you have the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were what I call the blue bloods of the Jewish people. 
they, they ran the temple. Uh, the Pharisees ran the weekly synagogues. And the Sadducees were what you might call liberal in a sense. They blew off most of the Old Testament. In fact, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in an afterlife. They didn't think there was going to be any heaven after you die or any resurrection. And then you add to that um, Herod. And Herod and his Jewish followers, which were called the Herodians, these people really weren't at all interested in a, in a Jewish Messiah or spiritual things. They were pretty much secularists. They were, they were into the politics of the world. They just wanted, they wanted the benefits of what they thought the Roman Empire could bring to make their lives better. And that's all they cared about. And these three people had very little in common. They often, these groups, didn't get along at all. But they did share one thing in common. They were trusting in something else to find meaning and fulfillment in their life. And they rejected Jesus Christ. And, and, and so Jesus' response in Matthew 16, 4, he kind of fleshes it out more than Mark does. And he said this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And that's referring to what? The sign of Jonah? Tell me. The resurrection, right? Three days Jonah was in the belly of the fish before he was vomited up on the shore. Three days Jesus was in the tomb before it vomited him up in the resurrection. <laughs> if you can say it that way. And so, you know, it happened. Did they believe when that sign happened? No. Because trusting in something else closes your heart to faith in Jesus, right? People today trust in all kinds of things, don't they? They try to find meaning and fulfillment and work out their problems in all kinds of ways. Maybe it's success, maybe with their career, happiness, happiness of their family. You know, parents, we can make idols of our children if we're not careful. Uh, maybe just having a good time, pleasure, enjoyment. Anytime you believe in something else, you look to something else to meet your deepest meaning and need, you are unbelieving in Jesus. It closes your heart to faith in Jesus. And so Jesus sighs in verse 12. It tells us this deep sigh of grief. And he does the only thing he can do. He turns and he leaves them to their own diversions. And then he warns his true disciples. Interesting, isn't it? He warns his true disciples about the teaching of these groups, these unbelievers. And the risk is that even those of us who are true followers of Jesus Christ, we really believe and we really want to follow him, we can be influenced by people around us because we live in a world where, where there, there are people around us who are not followers of Christ. And so the disciples weren't thinking about the things of God. They were thinking about bread. They had, they had lost their focus on Jesus. And, and they were thinking about, you know, how they could deal with something themselves, having enough bread with them. And so Jesus asked them, or your, in verse 17, he asked, Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Because they weren't thinking about him. They weren't paying attention to the him. They were looking to another way of meeting a need that they were concerned about, rather than trusting Jesus. So how do we do better with this? Here's the third question. How can I better understand that Jesus is all I need? How can I trust him better? What can I do? This is kind of the application. You'll notice in verses 17 and 21, Jesus kind of begins 
his, uh, his uh, correction for his disciples with the same question in verse 17 that he closes with in verse 21. And in that question, there is a wonderful three-letter word that is pregnant with hope. It is the word yet. Y-E-T. Look at verse 17. Do you not yet perceive or understand? And then in verse 21, he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, Jesus offered no yet to the Pharisees, did he? They had closed their heart to faith in Jesus. But his true disciples were struggling to trust Jesus, right? And so he asked, do you not yet understand? They're, they're confused, but guess what? They're making progress. There's hope for them. I can identify with that, right? <laughs> oh, God, be patient with me. You know, help me take the next step. And they do. In fact, Matthew, in his account, while, while Mark closes in verse 21 with that question, do you not yet understand? Matthew, in his more detailed account, adds an editorial comment, and he says this in Matthew 16, 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They made progress. And then we're going to turn a page or two, and Peter's going to make that wonderful confession that you are the Messiah. And you think, yes, they're really making progress. They're getting their heads wrapped around this. But they still struggle. In fact, throughout all the Gospels, these guys are knuckleheads. And they just struggle and struggle. In fact, you come to the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is after the resurrection. And, and he's, he's about to give the Great Commission. He's setting up the Great Commission. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 28, now the 11 disciples, notice, the 11 disciples, these are the hardcore guys, right? Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him and some doubted. After the resurrection, after Jesus unloaded everything he ever had to say to them and show them, they still doubt. So do I. We struggle, don't we? But there's a yet. There's a yet there for us. There are things that we can grow in. And so what can we do to grow? Here, here are three things. First of all, let's do heed Jesus' warning about the influence of those who are not followers of Christ. He warns his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. because He said it's like leaven or yeast that just multiplies one cell at a time and it spreads throughout all the dough, Right? And the truth is, no matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus Christ, we are all vulnerable to the influence of those around us who are not followers of Christ. We live in a world where there are people who, are, who, are, who just have, you know, different values. They're, they're pursuing different things in life, and it's easy for us to be influenced. All you want to do, if you want to see how susceptible you are to influence, is go back to your high school pictures. You ever looked at your high school pictures? I look at my high school pictures. Not only do I have hair, <laughs> I have long hair hair. <laughs> and you know what I'm sporting? I'm sporting wide bell bottoms. <laughs> I look exactly like every other teenager in the 1970s. And it's not just me. We all look like and talk like we use the same idiomatic expressions as our generation. 
It's amazing how well we comply and fit in with the culture of our generation. And you know, for most things, that's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with bell-bottoms. I hear they're coming back. <laughs> I wish I'd hung under that pair, Cindy. I don't know where it is. <laughs> but there are things about the culture around us that can draw our attention away from trusting Jesus. And we have to be careful about that. It's kind of like we're playing different games. Uh, this last weekend, a couple took Cindy and I out to teach us pickleball. Uh, we're learning the rules, and we're playing pickleball, and right beside us is someone playing tennis. Now, they have different rackets. They have a different ball. They have a different size court. They have different rules, different ways of scoring. And so we're playing right beside them, but we're playing a different game. And this is kind of what it's like for followers of Christ in the world around us. There are people around us, but they have different values. Uh, they have different expectations. They have different things they're trusting in. And you know what? We just have to be at peace with the fact that we're going to be different. Because we're following Christ. We're playing a different game. And, and they may not appreciate that. Some may find it offensive. The Pharisees and the Sadducees go on to have Jesus executed on the cross and persecute the disciples. Herod already had John the Baptist beheaded. And there are going to be people in our culture who really are not going to get the fact that we're living for a whole different thing. And we have to be careful to guard our hearts. I am a follower of Jesus. And, and I may love and appreciate all the people around me, but I'm playing a different game. And I have different values. And there's, I'm just going to be different. And if that bothers them, I can't worry about that. I have to be at peace with that. And, 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 then, and then Jesus asks his disciples a series of questions that kind of put his finger on a, on a couple of other things. Look at verse 18. He asked them, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Okay? Eyes, ears, remember. How do I, how do I keep my eyes and my ears open and remember what Jesus wants me to know about himself? And it's this. This is the second thing we can do. Keep looking to God's word for guidance. Keep looking to God's word. God reveals himself to us in scripture. This is how we know what Jesus did. This is how we know what Jesus said. This is how he reveals himself. We build our trust on the promises of God. And so if we want to grow in trusting him, we need to stay focused on God's word. And here's something else. I don't know, as I read about Jesus doing stuff with his disciples, I sometimes think, man, wouldn't it have been great to have been with Jesus? What would it have been like to be in the boat and actually hear the voice of Jesus with your own ears? What would it have been like to see with your own eyes Jesus do a great miracle? Maybe not just feed 4,000, maybe when he called Lazarus out of the grave. Wouldn't that have been amazing, don't you think? It's better than watching The Chosen, right? <laughs> actually hear and see Jesus. And yet, Jesus said... That, that you and I have an advantage over those who are with him. He said this on that last night that he was with his disciples. He said, there's something better that you're going to have when I leave. He said this in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into the heart of a believer. And Jesus said that same night in John 14, he said this, 
But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, teach you so you can hear and see what Jesus did and, and bring to remembrance in your head. Remember all that I have said to you. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to reveal himself to us and to speak into our lives in an amazing way. And so we want to abide in his word. Jesus said this in John 8. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. You'll understand what you need to understand. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I want to encourage you. Keep reading your Bible every day. Uh, come to worship. Uh, uh, value the proclamation of God's word, the teaching. Pastor Zach and I, we're not trying to give clever TED Talks. Or motivational speeches. We're trying to open God's word together. Um, be a part of a community group. James was talking about community groups. Our community groups are, are, are studying God's word. Be a part of that. And, and allow God's spirit to, to speak into your heart. Now I want to take this one step further. For the third way we can help. And it's this. When verse 17 he asked the question. Are your hearts hardened? And I thought about that quite a while. How do our hearts become hard as followers of Jesus Christ? And here's the thing that can keep that from happening and help us trust him. It's the third way we can, we can trust him better. Obediently follow the Spirit's leading when he speaks into your life. You know what hardens our hearts? God reveals himself to us. And there's an application. He wants us to do something about it. And we don't. We sit on our hands. We do nothing. We don't put it into practice. The kind of information Jesus is talking here is not intellectual information. It's transformational life change. And, and so it's like the way to pass the test that Jesus has is like the driving test. You know, when you're getting your driver's license, you don't just study the book. You have to get behind the wheel of the car. You have to practice. There's a skill you have to learn. He's looking for that in us. And so I thought about this. I, this past week, I was at a seminar talking about discipleship. So I've been thinking very deeply about these things. And, and, and one of the speakers uh, gave a wonderful illustration I wanted to share with you about how important it is for us to be a doer of the word. This is why James and Greg and their community groups, men, are studying the book of James. We want to be doers of the word. And he gave this illustration. He said, this is, this is kind of what churches do. This is our model of discipleship in churches, he said. It's like my daughter. He said, my daughter is messy, and she has a messy room. And from time to time, I'll say to her, dear, it's time to clean up your room. Any of your parents ever say that to your kids? It's time to clean up the room? Okay, well... What would happen, he said, if I say to her, it's time to clean up your room. And she says, okay, Dad, I'm going to do a deep study on the word clean. <laughs> I'm going to get together some of my friends. And once a week, we're going to get together and we're going to study methods of cleaning. But she doesn't clean her room. Would you be happy with that as a parent? Of course not. You, wanna, you want them to actually do it. And Jesus said, you know, we're blessed if we do the things that he says to us. And when we do that, that makes our heart tender to him. And so I want to be responsive to God's spirit as he speaks from his word. I'll share with you one other story. Because I met this guy, and, and, and you guys you would have so enjoyed this guy. He, he is a church planter who started a church planting movement with cowboy churches. I don't know if you know that they're cowboy churches, churches that... They cater to cowboys. And those are different from rodeo churches, I learned. <laughs> they're rodeo churches, too, and they're different from cowboy churches. So he, he started these cowboy churches. And so, and by the way, he was saying how many, he said there are more horses per capita in Washington than any other place. 
and like even Montana. And well, I had a private conversation with him afterwards. I, I didn't agree. You know, I didn't sound, that doesn't pass the litmus test just the thinking about. It. So he was showing me on his phone app showing where all the horses are in our state. And there are a lot of equestrian centers. And so he has these, these churches. Anyway, he, t- he told this story. It was so, I thought so funny. I wanted to share with you because it's, it's insightful. He, what he does is he gets these cowboys and he teaches them when they come to faith in Christ to read their Bible daily and ask God, what do you want me to do? And then do it. And he said, God's spirit will speak to you in two ways. When the spirit of God speaks to your, to your life, it, it, he's going to be either giving you an adjustment. That is something in your life you need to change, repent of and change. Or he's going to give you an assignment, something he wants you to do. And that's going to involve impacting the life of another person. So there'll usually be a face and name associated with an assignment. So this cowboy came to faith in Christ, and he's having one of his first devotionals. He reads his Bible, and he says, okay, God, what should I do about this? And this face of a woman comes to his mind. It's a woman that he has to deal with. And he got on the wrong side of this woman, and she hates him. And in fact, he hates her. Every time he goes in to do business, she starts literally just cursing him out. And so he said, you got to be kidding, God. I hate this woman. You, you want me to go to this woman? And, and, and he said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So he goes to the office where this woman was. He goes in, and when she sees him, she says, oh, what are you blankety-blank doing here? And she begins just to lay into him and cuss him out. I don't know how this works. It's a cowboy thing, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> And so he says to her, he sees behind her is a shelf that's broken. And he says, can I fix your shelf? And she stops mid-sentence. And she says, what? He says, can I fix your shelf? She said, why would you want to do that? He said, my pastor told me to. She said, what? Your pastor told you to fix my shelf? He said, well, no, he told me to, to read the Bible and ask God what he, he wants me to do. And when I was doing that, God brought your face to my mind. And she said, you're telling me God told you to come and fix my shelf? He said, yep. He went to his trucks. Cowboys always have tools in their truck. And uh, went and fixed it. It opened her heart to consider faith in Christ. That's the kind of thing that keeps our heart tender before God. When he speaks into our life, we're willing to be obedient. That is the ultimate test of whether we're trusting Jesus. That we're willing to just do what he says and leave it in his hands and not worry about anything else. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up as we prepare for communion. We're going to have communion. And I want to ask you, as a follower of Jesus, this is always a great time to evaluate your heart. How well are you following Jesus? Are you really trusting him? Or are you anxious about things? You're trying to work it out some other way. Are you willing to just follow and obey him? I'd like to pray for us as we prepare our hearts. And after, after um, I pray, I'm going to invite you just to come forward. And it's probably better to come along the outside and get your elements and return to your seat and just take it when you're ready. And the worship team will lead us in a, a couple more worship songs. But let's pray together. Father, I thank you. You want us to know you and that you do see our needs and you care about us. And you want us to understand that, that you're able to take care of everything if we will just trust you and really follow you, if we'd be willing to let our lives be covered with your dust, Lord Jesus, because we stay so close. As we share in this time of communion, we're mindful of how much you really do love us. You would give 
your body to be broken on the cross and your blood to be shed for us. How we thank you for that. Lord, help us. Help us trust you in a challenging and difficult world and follow you in Jesus' name.